Hi. Welcome to Fizzgig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz. The taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today we're going to look at the fizz that launched a thousand ships. Isn't it odd that instead of raising a glass to toast the launch of a ship, we brutally batter a bottle against the bow? Why? It's a tradition rooted in superstition. As anyone who can swing an albatross knows, ancient mariners led dangerous lives. Those in peril on the sea had only the most rudimentary protection against angry seas, or even simply getting lost. Seafarers believed that the gods of the sea demanded blood sacrifice, and if it wasn't offered at the launch, it would be taken later from the crew by the gods. Hopeful sailors thought that if the spirits of the dead in the sea were given an offering, then perhaps they'd be more inclined to guide the ship home safely. So a blood sacrifice was an obvious precaution. Those great seafarers, the Vikings, made human sacrifices. Having selected a suitable slave to be sliced and blooded the waters, as it were, the Vikings could set sail with insouciance. Babylonians, on the other hand, made animal sacrifices. In 3000 BC, the proper way to complete a ship was described as follows. Openings to the water I stopped. I searched for cracks and the wanting parts I fixed. Three sorry of bitumen I poured over the outside. To the gods I caused oxen to be sacrificed. Job done. The civilised Greeks, who after all were not barbarians, did not spill any blood, but instead drank red wine as a symbol of blood to honour the gods, particularly Poseidon, and get divine protection. As it was important for mariners to be properly marinated, they wore olive branch wreaths as they drank. That done, they poured water onto the boat to bless it. On the quarter deck, you know, the raised deck behind the mast where the captain commands the ship, they installed a shrine. The Romans did the same thing, although obviously they honoured Neptune, and even as late as the Middle Ages, shrines still appeared on quarter decks. In medieval times, there was a shift in emphasis from blood sacrifice to appease angry gods to asking for the divine blessing of a beneficent god, or failing that, a saint. At the launch of a brigantine of 23 oars by the Knights of Malta in 1675, the royal naval chaplain recorded, two friars and an attendant went into the vessel. Two friars and an attendant went into the vessel and kneeling down, prayed half an hour, and laid their hands on every mast and other places of the vessel, 
and sprinkled her all over with holy water. Then they came out and hoisted a pennant to signify she was a man of war, and then at once thrust her into the water. No remnant of pagan blood sacrifice there. After the Reformation in England in the 16th century, this all seemed a bit too Catholic. Launching ships became a secular, not a religious activity. No priests, no saints, no holy water, no mass, no wine. No, wait, they kept the wine. Wine was too important. They sipped red wine from a large gold or silver cup, known as the standing cup, and then poured the rest of it on the deck, on the four cardinal points of the compass, while the ship was named aloud. As the ship was officially named, the cup was tossed into the water as a gift to the seas. In fact, often the cup was retrieved and sold off by some lucky diver. When ship production boomed, this became too expensive a habit, so the precious cup was caught by a net and reused, or sometimes even given to the master shipwright. Eventually, late 17th century cost-cutting banned the practice, and instead of a standing cup, a bottle was broken on the bow. The Royal Navy has launched its ships like this ever since. But why bubbly instead of blood or blood symbol? Because it's spectacular. Freed from ancient superstition and religious rite, ship launching could be more dramatic. And what could be more thrilling than a froth-filled explosion? Since Georgian times, champagne was the go-to launch fizz. The custom began of ladies who launched, which is probably appropriate for a maiden voyage. In 1810, one princess of Hanover, whose bottle pitching was more enthusiastic than accurate, managed to miss the ship entirely, but instead hit one of the spectators, who promptly sued the Admiralty. And while champagne is almost always used for the explosion of foamy spray, I'm told on the QT that Carver, with its bigger bubbles, is even more spectacular, and it's certainly cheaper. English sparkling wine has been used by the Royal Navy to launch warships, and was also used to launch the cruise ship Britannia. So now, it's fizz that launches thousands of ships, but it's not a universal practice. The White Star Line, for example, didn't do it at all. Would it have made a difference to the fate of the Titanic? And recently, the Queen launched the Scottish-built HMS Queen Elizabeth, a Royal Navy aircraft carrier, with a single malt Scotch whisky, which wasn't even slightly fizzy. So having rid ourselves of ancient superstitions, we adopt modern ones. It's supposed to be bad luck if the bottle doesn't break on the bow. And this is tricky. As you know, champagne bottles are tough old glass and hard to smash but you can shift the odds a little in your favour. You can score the bottle with a diamond cutter to make sure it shatters on impact. Although, if you misjudge it, the bottle will explode prematurely under the bubble pressure, so please do be careful. You can also use large format bottles, like a Jeroboam. Bigger bottles have more bubbles and so have lots more internal pressure, and also the bigger bottles are more likely to have small natural defects in the glass and are therefore more likely to break. And you can swing the bottle from a rope rather than trying to smash it by hand. The rope should be rigid without too much give or it'll act as a shock absorber. Swing the bottle hard and when the bottle meets bow, boom!
It doesn't always go according to plan, though. When the Duchess of Cornwall launched the Queen Victoria, the bottle refused to smash. When passengers later became ill with a stomach bug, people blamed the curse of Camilla. And Dame Judi Dench went through three bottles while launching the carnival legend. She smashed the third bottle with such force that she was nicknamed Dame Judi Drench. It may be a shame to waste so much delicious froth, but champagne has had a small revenge. A well-known German fizz vendor brutally broke a boat against an enormous bottle of champagne. It was pulverised by Pomeroy. Revenge is sweet. So, anyone for pudding? I don't want to give the impression that I'm obsessed by explosions, champagne or otherwise, but following the invention of gunpowder, the wine-drinking man became even more important. The best weapons in Europe from the 14th century, cannon, needed gunpowder, and gunpowder was 75% saltpetre, which was in short supply. Medieval gunsmiths realised they could mix earth, urine, dung and lime to make saltpetre, but the urine was particularly important. They literally put the pea in saltpetre. It provides the ammonia, which oxygen and bacteria turn into nitrates, magnesium, calcium and potassium, since you ask, and it's these nitrates that could be mixed with wood ash to separate off the potassium carbonate, leaving you with, well, potassium nitrate, of course, saltpetre to you and me. The best results depend on a certain quality of the urine, and apparently urine from a wine-drinking man was particularly effective. His golden liquid became liquid gold. Now, gunpowder also has a tendency to separate during transportation and then burn unevenly and fail to explode properly. So what on earth could they use to bind its constituent parts together? Why, more urine from a wine-drinking man, of course. Wine drinkers, gunpowder needs you. Now here's a little piece of alcohol-related trivia for you. In the spirits boom of the 16th century, gunpowder was used to assess the level of alcohol and therefore the level of tax. A pellet of gunpowder was soaked in the spirit and if it could be lit, it was overproof, that is, 57% alcohol or over, and more tax would be payable. The gunpowder-proof method was discontinued in the UK in 1816, but persisted in the USA until 1980. So there we have it, Fizzerati. We have slid down the slipway and gone from bubbly to briny. It's time to weigh anchor, cast off and set sail. Thanks for listening. And I do hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll take our first sip together of the world's most famous sparkling wine, Champagne. In the meantime, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin. <laughs>